Our reading today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite uh, little tiny pieces of heritage or history of our church is uh, we belong to an association of churches called the Alliance for Renewal Churches. It's not a denomination in that you have to believe to a certain set of uh, doctrinal convictions beyond the creeds. Uh, the creed that we said this morning contains the historic Christian faith. That creed was written in the 400s. It had uh, it had a rich history already in the 400s. Finally, someone writ- wrote it down and codified it. But it had been always part of the church's practice to recite a creed or to recite what our faith is as a normal part of our worship service for more than one reason. One of them is to educate our children, but also 
to remind ourselves of what the bounds of the Christian faith are and what the, the things are which we cannot disagree on. We cannot disagree that God is the maker of heaven and earth. We cannot disagree that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God and that the Holy Spirit is both uh, is, is the Lord, the giver of life. That is, the Trinitarian faith, which is espoused in the creed, gives us a succinct bounds of where are the fence lines on the Christian faith? Where are the boundary lines? And so when we come to other issues that aren't addressed in the creeds, we have to understand that there is some room for disagreement and that Christians of good faith on both sides of the issue uh, may disagree, and yet at the same time, they can still be brothers. Jesus Christ prayer as he went to the cross was that the father would make us into one. And if you know what was happening in the disciples, that's a pretty bold prayer. Every time Jesus uh, encounters some miracle or does some miracle, the disciples usually respond with arguing about who's the greatest or who's going to own it all. Or, you know, at one point, James and uh, John, their mother, actually, I mean, think about, I ask for promotion at work. I ask for favor from the Lord. James and John get their mother to go ask Jesus whether they can sit at the right hand and the left hand. Uh, now, just as a point of, of levity, I want to just suggest, well, if Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and the mother is asking for the kids to be at the left hand or the right hand, one of them is going to be right in front of God. And I don't think that's a good position to be in. So, uh, the, the point being that Jesus' prayer is audacious. Jesus' prayer that they would be unified is audacious, and yet we believe that God answered that prayer, that the church really is one, and though we do not see how the church is one today, we have to, in faith, be working for uh, unity and also uh, common, common peace with our fellow brothers and sisters. And so, no, we're not going to go out and start some ecumenical movement and finally unify the churches and be God's great solution to some real problems in the church. But at the same time, we have to learn, and this is one of the core convictions of the ARC, we have to learn how to be uh, disagreeing on non-essentials and on the essentials, absolutely willing to die on those hills, so to speak, uh, both for, for the truth and for our brothers who are standing for the truth about those particular issues. And so we're going to talk about something that... Uh, even people in this church disagree on. Um, but we're going to talk about it in the covenant. We're not going to talk about it after uh, establishing it and then work our way back to covenant. We're going to work from covenant to that issue. And that issue today is water baptism. Now, the other great history that we have, uh, Ray's coming next week, and he's uh, the former president of the Alliance for Renewal Churches. But one of my favorite uh, things, sometimes you get really significant things uh, really significant moments in your life are simple phrases that other people don't even intend to uh, change your life with. But he, all he did was tell me about this church that he was affiliated with in northern Michigan, and the church was called Servants of the Word. And that's the name of their church. And what it, they seek to uh, state by that name is, we're not coming and superimposing our will on the text and coming with a set of doctrines, a set of beliefs, and then seeing, okay, well, where can we, you know, we've got to establish this somewhere. Uh, as Bible-believing Christians, as evangelicals who believe that we need a true faith, we've got to find it somewhere. So let's 
superimpose our meaning on top of Scripture. No, the, the, that title of the church, that name of the church, means we are servants of the Word. We are simply seeking to uphold and deliver the Word of God, not superimpose our standard onto it. And so that's what I'm going to attempt to do today concerning this issue. Um, we're going to look at five elements today. A good Reformed sermon always has five points. Um, we're going to look at the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant is probably the most misunderstood thing in the scriptures, which causes people to get wrong the distinction between law and gospel or law and grace, if you will. Although I don't believe that law and grace are opposed to each other in those terms, the, the misunderstanding that leads you to ignore the everlasting covenant creates many problems. It's kind of like dropping toxic waste upstream and then drinking downstream from it. You always up drink upstream from the herd, not downstream from the herd. And, and getting things wrong at the covenantal level, at the eternal covenant level, at the beginning of Genesis, getting things wrong there, it ripples through the rest of the scriptures. And so we're going to look at Genesis really heavily. We've looked at these passages in this church before. If you have been here for any length of time, none of this will be new, although some of the application will be new. But we're going to talk about the eternal covenant as it exists uh, before Sinai, before the giving of the law. We're going to talk about what baptism isn't and is. It would have sounded better to say we're going to talk about what baptism is and isn't. But we're going to talk about what it isn't, and then we're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about the necessity of faith. We're going to be advocating for something today. I'm going to be advocating for something, and I believe the Word of God uh, advocates for this. But even though we believe, uh, you know, that, uh, that children are able to be baptized, that's basically where we're going, to, to give you a, a little hint. Even though we believe that, we still maintain that every single person needs to respond to God in faith. And we're going to show how that was true in the Old Testament, and that's true in the New Testament. There's been no change between the covenants of, of how people are saved. It was never by the works of the law that any flesh will be justified. It wasn't true in the Old Testament. It wasn't true before the giving of the law, and it's not true now after Christ has died and gone to the Father. We're going to talk from there about God's covenant purpose for family. God has a goal. Uh, one of my favorite ways of reading the first three books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, we see in those chapters that God is at war with uh, the people who are in Palestine, in the land that would eventually be the promised land, uh, eventually known as Palestine. But in that land, he's at war for that land to bear fruit. He's jealous for that land and the people who live in that land to bear fruit. And we see God over and over again demanding that those who are in his covenant bear fruit. And those who do not, he removes from the covenant. That's true in Old and New Covenant. And, or the Old and New Testaments. And, and so we're going to look at God's purpose for family. And that purpose for family drives what we understand to be family following of Christ, not just individuals. And probably the greatest, uh, the greatest hindrance, or the greatest evidence, rather, of how far we get it wrong is really looking at the, the wealth or the, the worth, rather, of, of the family today. It's arguable that the West is making technological progress. No one denies that. I work in computer science. The things that we're doing now, just with algorithms and 
data and, and all these things are solving problems the world over. Very serious problems, humanitarian issues, resource utilization, uh, even some you know, war issues. Technology by far is making progress. Our scientific understanding is making progress, but our, you could never argue if you were honest with just a societal evaluation, you could never argue that as a whole, the West's understanding of family, the purpose of life, morality, none of those things are increasing. And in fact, they're just declining at an alarming rate. And I believe it's because we've limited the gospel to just saying about people, about you versus me, how we respond to God, instead of how we organize our families, how we seek to worship God and serve God, not just as individuals, but as families and in the church as a family of families. God did not call Abraham and say to Abraham, as we're about to see, Abraham, I'm going to make you great and everybody's going to remember you. No, he said, I'm going to make you great and a father of many peoples. And so it's always about people that God is interested. And then finally, we're going to look at not losing the center. None of what we're going to talk about today would be worth anything if it wasn't rooted and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners. And so I'm going to attempt to disarm some common objections to this doctrine. And then from there, I'm going to make a little bit of a positive argument for it. Um, our church has a, a very good experience with pedo communion and i'm going to define my terms at this point pedo means child uh it just means a, a little one and pedo communion is the belief that children are part of the covenant and therefore the children of believing parents are welcome to the table it doesn't mean that we say you know just go get any kid and bring them into church and then they're ready to t no they need to be prepared to the bible says that he who does not discern the body and blood of the lord actually each judgment into himself. You know, if you, if you take the body of the Lord and you treat it in an unworthy manner, you're bringing condemnation. And so it's actually a bad thing to just take a random kid off the street and bring him to church and, and uh, give them the elements because they're not ready for those things. Uh, it's totally different when you have someone who is the child of a believing family. And there's very practical reasons for that. Namely, when the kid asks later, what just happened? then the father or the mother can reassure the child of what's going on, why we're doing this, etc. And so pedo communion has a very rich history in our church, and we, we get it. We have emotional empathy with that argument. Now, some, some of us in this church don't, and that's okay. You don't have to have in your mind a robust theology of why we're okay with this. Um, but what you do have to do is you have to love your brothers and sisters, and you also have to be willing to hear. That's what we have to do as Christians. We have to be willing to hear from God's word, and we have to be willing to have our mind renewed. So, um, because the sacraments of Christ's church are both infused with, by God, meaning, and also because of that, they communicate meaning, we believe that they're necessary or that they're applicable to children. And what that means is both pedo-communion and pedo-baptism, and here I'll again define my terms, that, the child, that children who do not yet profess faith are able to be baptized by the covering of their parents' faith. And that actually, I'm going to attempt to demonstrate, is a major uh, arc in terms of narrative or a storyline or a major focus of the covenant as it ripples throughout Scripture. And we're going to see here in both the Pentateuch, the Gospels, 
one minor prophet, the book of Acts, Corinthians, and Romans, and then finally Hebrews, how they all talk about water baptism uh, and covenant and the application of our children to be members of God's household. We do not believe that we're going to get the argument right about baptism and then from there tack back upstream to, to figure things out about covenant. We're going to look at covenant and see what that indicates for the future. Uh, that is, things to come later in the scriptures. Therefore, we're going to draw on scriptures being aided by the Holy Spirit. But the, the command to believers, the command to the disciples, is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to be renewed, it means necessarily that as a Christian, you occasionally change things. Now, I'm not saying that you go around just flipping what side of every issue you're on every few years. Uh, a mind is open in order to close on something, exactly like a mouth is open in order to close on something, right? And so having an open mind such that your mind is so open so your brains fall out, that would be a terrible thing. But you have to be willing to let God to speak, and so we need to be willing to hear. So let's really quickly, we're going to talk about the covenant and how it begins to lay the foundation for uh, what baptism is. God made an everlasting covenant to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Galatians makes it clear that God did not promise that through seeds, but rather to the seed. And that seed was Christ. In Abraham was a, a lineage that would eventually include Jesus Christ. And that is why God says, Abraham's seed would bless all the nations. And the word nations is not the word nations that we think of people who would attend a UN meeting, the United Nations meeting. It means literally genera or families. And so tribes is a, a really good term. And when you see in the book of Revelation, you see men from men and women, of course, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's saying tribe, tongue, and family or genera or line. And so here, God is telling Abraham that through you, all the families would be blessed. He doesn't say all the people would be blessed. And that's actually a very important distinction between what, what we see the end being. Uh, I don't believe, as someone who believes that Christ will retor return to a victorious bride, I'm not convinced that everyone will necessarily become a Christian on the earth. But I am convinced that God's jealous to be a promise-keeping God. We've seen him do it over and over again. He will keep his promise to Abraham. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Not necessarily every person on the earth will be converted Christian. But in giving the covenant, he commanded Abraham to put a sign of the covenant on his children and all who were in his household. So this discussion about pedo communion is really not a discussion about whether children can receive water baptism, but rather whether water baptism should be applied to an individual or to a family. And understanding that distinction, we begin to reevaluate some of the major arguments in, in a, a lot of the uh, hesitations seem to fall away when we uh, look at it that way. These children that Abraham was told to circumcise were involved in the covenant, not whether they decided to be in the covenant, or what, just simply on the basis of who their parents were. No one asked an eight-year-old Jewish child whether or not he wanted to receive the sign of God's covenant, and yet God told Abraham to do it. So we begin to see the difference between covenant and faith. Faith was given to Abraham to respond in the promise, 
And yet, it doesn't say that faith was given to all of Abraham's children. Rather, we see in the New Testament very clearly that it was always those who were of faith, who were the true children of Israel. And so of necessity, we must understand that there were some Israelites who were circumcised. And when you get to the Pharisees in the, in the Gospels, you see a lot of them were not true children of Abraham. And that's the difference. We have to understand that being a part of the covenant and, being, and having true faith are not the same thing. And once you see that, it really starts to make sense. Circumcision was a sign of the promise of God and therefore a sign of the gospel. The New Testament says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. It doesn't say that the law was preached to Abraham. And in fact, the law hasn't even been given yet. Circumcision is not something that came in the law. It came as a sign of the promise and therefore a sign of the gospel. Because what is the promise? That through Abraham's seed, that is Christ, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How will they be blessed? They'll be given new life in him. As Paul teaches in Galatians, this covenant that God made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, was not set aside in the giving of the law or the Mosaic covenant, the national covenant with Israel, so as to whether God would bless her or chastise her based on her response to his faithful commands. Before circumcision is commanded in Leviticus 12, it's commanded in Genesis 15. That might be another way to say, if you don't understand that, that the circumcision didn't come in the law initially, it came way before that. And so circumcision was not a sign of the law, but a sign of the promise. Now, rightly, the New Testament talks about some people who didn't want that to be the case, and we're going to discuss that. But, but before we get there, you have to understand that circumcision did not originate as part of the law code. It originated as a sign of the promise. And when the sign of the promise changes, uh, we'll see what does and doesn't change uh, at that point. At the start of the church, as we read today in Acts 2, that's the start of the church at the day of Pentecost, God fulfills the promise to Abraham by bringing in large number of, uh, numbers of Gentiles. We talked about this on Pentecost Day sermons here a lot. On that day, at the beginning of Acts 2, it says that there are men from nations all over who aren't Israelites, but they had heard about God's righteousness through the preaching of Moses in synagogues that were all around and outside of Israel. Uh, Israel, just like Christianity, had people who would go out and preach. And so uh, at one point in the New Testament, it says that there are preachers of Moses in every town. And, and the idea, the implication is clear that there were people who were going out and sharing with the Gentiles, look at this light that we have that God gave us, that in the law, there is this uh, understanding and this truth. Uh, if you were here at the Sunday school hour, exactly what we read in Romans. So uh, at this point, we now need to look at what changes when this church comes about. Uh, before we have an understanding of Israel as the people of God, and at this very moment, we see a very clear uh, indication that something's changed. Uh, I don't believe that something has changed right on Acts 2, right in Acts 2, but rather it was changing throughout Jesus' public ministry, that he was beginning to call out people out of Israel into the church. Some of the Jews at this point start to demand that the Gentiles receive circumcision, and that's when uh, now, as students of the New Testament, we start to remember, oh, right, Colossians, Galatians, etc. And at this point, we have to, un to seek to understand why. 
the apostles in Acts 15 give a testimony how God baptized the Gentiles in the spirit, and also they received water baptism. And the church in this, at this point clearly teaches that circumcision is not necessary for these Gentiles to be part of the covenant. And at this point, we have to ask, why is that the case? Why not circumcision? And the reason is clear. Christ in the Great Commission does not command us to go and circumcise all nations. That would be a mighty bloody task. (laughs) He commands us to baptize all nations. After having done what? After having preached the gospel, preached the gospel, and declare the good news, and bring them into the life of God and teach them to observe everything that he commanded them. And so what Jesus commands us to do is not to go and circumcise, but rather to baptize. And this is very important. Jesus Christ himself is the only one who has the authority to change the outward manifestation of a sign or a seal of God's covenant. It's not Paul even though if Paul wrote it, I would still, because of my understanding of the word of God, God wanted to make it extremely clear. Now, even though Christ did this, and even though the apostles taught this early on in in the city of Jerusalem in Acts 15, there are still these people who are not okay with that. And they continue to maintain and advocate. And this is where we see the arguments come up in Galatians, Colossians, that people are demanding that these other Gentile Christians submit, even though Christ was clear and the apostles in a unified voice said circumcision is not necessary. And so they clearly indicate what has changed. The sign and the seal of membership in God's covenant is not circumcision, but rather it's water baptism. And they fought long and hard about it. And even after God had made that change, a lot of people caused a lot of ruckus. And we have very much textual evidence in the New Testament to see that there was a great dispute about one very small aspect of the change. Now, of course, we still, in teaching this, maintain that Christ set set aside the law code uh, with regard to the, the covenant code which isolated Israel from the Gentile nations, but that does not mean that Christ abrogated the law, but rather only the cultural provisions which isolated Israel and kept them distinct, which were given to teach them holy, unholy, clean, unclean, those things passed away. And how do we know that? Because God made ample evidence by teaching Peter that when he was going about to go to the Gentiles, God gave a a vision to Peter in which he lets down a sheet. And what's on the sheet? There's wonderful bacon. There's, There's animals which are unclean. And what does Peter do? I think it's interesting. Peter denied Christ three times. And God in making it really clear to Peter that he was restored, Jesus Christ tells Peter, feed my sheep three times. And here again, Peter is getting a major change in his understanding of what the scriptures plainly teach. And God lets down the sheet three times. The indication is clear. Peter was very dense. He needed the reminder. That's not disrespectful to St. Peter. Uh, he, He needed the reminder. He needed to understand what was happening. And so God made it overwhelmingly clear of the change that took place. You can now preach to the Gentiles. And, and the, the way that he did that is he would, said, everything has been declared clean. And that wasn't just Peter's encounter. Because Jesus, when he's warring with the Pharisees about cleanliness rules, your disciples don't wash the outside of the cup. Jesus says 
that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what proceeds out of him, because what proceeds out of the heart are envies, murders, gossips. And then the gospel writer at that point says, thus he declared all foods clean. And we miss that. We totally miss that. We think, oh, well, obviously he's still talking to Jews and the law still applies. No, Jesus Christ was beginning to demonstrate that the visible marks of the people of God are changing with the kingdom of God coming and the New Testament becoming a reality on the earth. And so, because of all that, the New Testament epistles, which are written to the churches, show that circumcision has moved and that Christians are now sealed in water baptism. They're not made Christians in water baptism. They're sealed as members of the covenant. And that's an important distinction. The change from the sign of the covenant to the, uh, of being from circumcision to baptism was explicitly clear over and over again. And there was much controversy. But there is no explicit, let alone veiled at all, mention that there was a change in those who were to receive the sign of the covenant. Think about it like this. If the assumption is there's a continuity and we're Jewish believers who, who recognize the Messiah, it would have been an unthinkable idea for God to, even in the Old Testament, say your children are to be brought up in the covenant. But now that the New Testament is here, the new covenant is here, now it no longer matters whether you bring up your children in the covenant. That would have been an unthinkable position as a New Testament Christian or a first century Christian because the, the scripture says over and over again, the promises in the new covenant are greater and more inclusive of family than the Old Testament. What was the great cry in Malachi was that God needed to send someone in the spirit and the power of Elijah to send the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, restoring the family. So if the family included covenant inclusion in the Old Testament, and the New Testament has greater promises, and here I'm accidentally getting Testament and covenant swapped uh, a few times, but that, that's not the point. The point is that if the New Testament has greater and more precious promises, which include being for our children, then how could we think that they are not yet party to the sacraments and the seals of Christ? So that's the beginning of the dispersing of the negative argument against family baptism. And now we're going to talk about what baptism is, because we've just talked about what covenant is. God made a covenant, and he commands us to obey the covenant, and that is distinct from responding in faith to God, as the scriptures over and over again say. So let's talk about what baptism is. Baptism is not magic. Uh, baptism is not priestcraft. Uh, it's not, you know, we're all familiar with the term witchcraft, uh, but it's not priestcraft. What I mean by that is baptism uh, is not something that creates this uh, inner reality uh, where there isn't an inner reality. And those who hold to credo-baptism say occasionally, actually, that, that it does. And what I mean by that is the credo-baptist position, that is a believer's baptism, credo means faith, uh, that's what's actually at the beginning of our creeds, credo, creeds, is I believe in one God, right? I believe. That's where the, the name creeds comes from. It comes from um, the Latin. Yeah. I need to go to school. Um, you guys should send me to seminary. Anyway. Yeah, you got to, well, you got to pay for it. Um, it means I believe. And so, so, Baptism is not magic, and baptism does not save you apart from a living faith. It does not regenerate. 
by teaching that children of covenant families should be baptized, we are not saying that that makes them born-again Christians. And, and once you get rid of that false objection uh, against paedo-baptism, then you begin to say, okay, well, what, what, is paedo, what does paedo-baptism mean? Being a baptized member of the visible church does not guarantee salvation. And if you think it does, you have not yet understood the gospel. Because Jesus said that you must be born again. You cannot even see the kingdom of God if you're not born again, let alone inherit eternal life. You must be born again. And so, paedo-baptists do not believe that dunking a child in water regenerates them. It does not accomplish the new birth. Why? Because children aren't born of their own will, as John 1 says. They're not born of their own will, but rather born of the will of God. It's God who causes the new birth. Men don't cause the new birth. And in fact, many credo-baptists who also hold that it's up to the individual to respond in faith or not, uh, subtly teach that it's up to them whether they're born, reborn or not. But the scripture's clear, it's God's will. Likewise, in that very same passage when Jesus says, you must be born again, he says the spirit moves how he wants. And so we are not saying, by saying that children should be baptized, we're not saying that they're magically made into newborn believers, reborn believers, uh, when they're dunked. That's not what happens. In the words of Keith Green, a wonderful worship musician of the 1970s, and if you don't know who Keith Green is, you should get a hold of some of his albums. Uh, going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Now that's a little funny, but the point is clear. Just simply being uh, around the things of the faith doesn't mean you're getting the things of the faith. Peter shows the heart of the meaning in water baptism as corresponding to the work of Christ. Now, we don't have time to go into a lot of the context before this in 1 Peter, but he says baptism, which corresponds to this, and the, the, the phrase corresponding to this is indicating something that took place earlier in the passage, and what that thing is Christ dying. Corresponding to this, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not a physical outward manifestation which causes something, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The point is clear. If you don't have a faith which believes this, that is, is aimed to Jesus Christ, then baptism isn't effective. Insofar as baptism comes alongside saving faith, then it is very beneficial. Apart from it, it does nothing. That appealing to God is true faith. It's trusting in the suffering, death, and resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ. That's what saving faith is. It's a trust outside of yourself on someone else. Drawing on the teachings of Scripture, the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches succinctly what baptism is. Now, if you don't know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is, it's a succinct doctrinal confession that was written in the 1600s by a group of very zealous and, and smart church people in the Church of England. Now, by quoting from this, I'm not saying we're Anglican, but what I am saying is the Westminster Confession of Faith has a lot of goodness in it, and it's up to us to uh, make use of and take hold of and learn from uh, confessions where we can. We don't agree with every confession, but I think the Westminster Confession is uh, very helpful at this point. 
Uh, chapter 28, section 1, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Period, full stop. If you wanted to put a period there, you could. The point is that baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. It's of something. And what is it of? It's of his ingrafting into Christ. It does not cause his ingrafting to Christ. It is of regeneration. It doesn't, you see what I'm saying here? It's of remissions of sin and of giving his giving up to God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church throughout the world. Where do they get that? They get that from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and baptize. That's what informs this verse. Uh, and so, being a member of the visible church doesn't guarantee salvation, though it does provide a child, a child growing up in a covenant family, with many benefits, including a discipleship in a congregation, the raising of the child in the way he should go, that he should not turn from it. That's what being a member of the covenant is. It's being raised in a context of covenant faithfulness. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt by the splitting of the Red Sea and brought them into the promised land by the splitting of the Jordan, so also at this point in history, God is calling out a people out of Israel. And this is where we meet up with the Gospels. John the Baptist is sent by God to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. The implication is that Israel, who was supposed to stay near to God, wasn't ready to receive Jesus Christ. God sent John to prepare them. John preaches a message of righteousness saying that the kingdom is about to break in. And where do I get that phrase? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand, and your hand is not very far away from you. The kingdom of God is near, is what he's saying. It's about to break in. It's on the scene. And people should prepare themselves for the visitation of the Lord. If you're a uh, New Testament student, you may remember these things. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The conviction of the Holy Spirit at this point is so attendant to the preaching of the gospel, that is, the preaching of the need to repent and to respond to God's coming kingdom in faith, is so uh, sure at this point, John begins to seal that message with a sign. And the sign is water baptism. Matthew 3, 5 through 7, Jerusalem and all Judea and the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when many he saw of the Pharisees, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come?" Tweet that. See how many retweets you get. We think that you know the apostles and the prophets are so meek and mild. John is confronting the Pharisees. Why is he confronting the Pharisees? Well, we'll ask that in a second. But notice the text does not say that all the men and the women of Jerusalem were coming to John. Let's look at it again. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Now, I don't know about you, but in at least American history, we can see that child care services are a relatively new invention in terms of a commodity business where you could just go drop your kid off somewhere. Now, if the whole city goes out to the Jordan, I don't think at that time Jerusalem had a, you know, 50,000 member childcare service. It's my belief that there are probably some children involved in this scene, but here's the point. It doesn't matter whether the text says it or not. 
because I'm not arguing for household baptism from this alone. What I am saying is this informs what we understand about baptism, and baptism is a sign and a seal, a confirmation of the confession of sin, and also that those who engage in it wrongly or hypocritically are to be refused from it. Even paedo-baptists believe that. If you had a family who wanted to baptize their kids and wanted to become believers and they were outside the faith and they're, you know, being evangelized and coming into the church, we would still maintain that the parents need to have authentic faith and they need to be interviewed by an elder. They need to be, uh, they need to, it needs to be shown that they actually are repenting. You can't just dunk somebody. And John the Baptist rebukes the Pharisees for coming. Why do they, why does he rebuke them for coming because they saw the crowds going the reason the pharisees do anything in in the gospels is because they see the crowds are going after this new movement which is really a restoration of the old work of god the old true authentic work of god and the pharisees over and over again do this in in, in john 11 45 through 53 we see the plot to to kill jesus is kind of in the middle of the Gospel of John, and it says that they saw the crowds going to him, and therefore they started to hold counsel. All the world is following him. What are we going to do? See that you're profiting nothing. And at this point, they begin to, uh, to... So the whole reason John the Baptist rebukes them is he can tell in the Spirit that these people aren't coming because they actually want to repent and receive the Messiah. They just want to get baptized so all the other people in Israel will know they moved when God moved. You know, when God moves and there's a revival, you have a lot of people who want to, you know, get involved, but not so that they would actually encounter God. They just want to be seen as, you know, being holy and being with people. And you'll always have that. And you're never able to distinguish uh, at first who those people are. Nevertheless, true repentance and baptism is done looking forward to being able to have fellowship with the Lord, looking forward to being able to have fellowship with the Lord. At this point, when all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea are being baptized, they're not being baptized to come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why do I say that so succinctly? Because at this point in history, Jesus Christ had not been revealed. No one who was baptized by John the Baptist up until the day where he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. None of them were baptized in order to have a relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was not yet unveiled. They were baptized in the promise being the kingdom of God is at hand, the Messiah is about to appear. So they were baptized before they had met the Messiah. They were baptized on the condition of, are they responding in faith to the covenant that God's bringing about in Israel? And so here we see yet another argument against these uh, objections to Pado communion and fall, because the common argument is, well, these children haven't met Jesus. Well, that's true. They haven't necessarily met Jesus for themselves yet. They aren't reborn. They aren't born again Christians, but they are children who belong to a group of people, namely their family and their church, who will introduce them to Jesus Christ. So, Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Again, John is informing why that water baptism happens. I will baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
at the beginning of water baptism that John is doing in Israel, he's already saying this water baptism is done unto an encounter with one who's coming who is mightier than I, and it's necessary that you encounter him, not just me here at these waters. And so water baptism, if it is done by people who believe in paedo-baptism or credo-baptism, that does not lead to the person with an ongoing encounter, is not, that's not the true goal. The true goal is baptism for the washing and repentance, and for the, at, in that context to then be in covenant with a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. A major aspect of the message of the prophets and the apostles all throughout Scripture is the forming of family. So now that we've seen a little bit of covenant and a little bit of baptism, let's talk a little bit why I believe family baptism is a good thing to practice, along with credo-baptism. And keep in mind, in all of this talk, if you're a new believer and you weren't baptized as a child, you are just as welcome in the covenant as someone who was baptized as a child. Those who teach paedo-baptism are in no way saying that we don't need to also practice credo-baptism. And in fact, if a church that does baptize their children is never also baptizing non-children, are they really evangelizing? And I would argue no. And that's a very bad sign. So in no way are we saying by, by this that the by saying that the children are included, we're in, in no way saying that people shouldn't still be baptized who are coming to faith. So, a major aspect of the message of the prophets and the apostles throughout all of the scripture is God wants covenant family. God's rebuke through, that comes through the mouth of Malachi to the men of Judah was for infidelity for their wives. Why? Not just for their wives, but because they spoiled the vintage. Now, that's a wine term, which... Hopefully you don't think that's heresy. Vintage is every year there is a movement by the winemakers. They put grapes in the ground. They put, they put roots in the ground. Those roots take and they bear fruit. And then they gather the fruit and they prepare it and they wash it and they squish it. And then they put it into these vats and then they store it in barrels for hundreds of years, sometimes hundreds of years. Cheap wine is made and then given to you. But the point, the point being, they call that whole process of raising up fruit, gathering it in, and making it into wine. They call that the work of the whole year is the vintage. And spoiling the vintage happens when any one of a number of things go wrong. The grapes are left on the vines too long, and they spoil and they get moldy, or they get burnt by the sun, or there's not enough water, or when they gather them, they bruise them, or when they put them and before they squish them, they didn't wash them good enough, and so dirt and bacteria and terrible things get into your wine. Don't drink that kind of wine. Uh, it's a spoiling of the vintage. And why is it such a, why am I using this term? Because I want to convey that God is doing an amazing amount of work in preparing Israel in giving her the covenants and in teaching them how to teach their children. He's doing all this work in order to get godly fruit. And spoiling the vintage is a great tragedy. God promises through Malachi not to receive their worship even if they do their worship according to all of the right sacrificial system. You know, slaying the calf and making sure the, sh the sheep or the offering doesn't have a blemish. Even if they do all the outward stuff right, God refuses to receive their worship because of one thing that they get wrong. Malachi 2, 14 and 15, but you say, why does he not? It, earlier it says, God promises not to hear you. Why do you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
it's not wife just because you go around and saying, well, I've lived with this person. They live with me. We're basically married. No. Covenant made. Verse 14. Uh, sorry, that's verse 15. I didn't change the, title, uh, the number. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? This is very informative to you young people who are looking to get married. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was the, the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Why did God put the spirit in your marriage? He wants godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Right before this, uh, maybe not right before this, in the same chapter, it says God hates divorce. The point is clear. God wants there to be a context of a man and a woman who love each other, who are covenantally bonded together, who are faithful to each other. So why? So that there would be godly offspring who come from it. The implication is clear. If you do not love the wife of your youth, if you are treacherous to her and, and therefore cause his altar to be filled with tears, that's what it says earlier in this chapter, cause his altar to be filled with tears because of your infidelity to her, then you have set up a system, you've set up a context for your children where they will not be godly. The reason is, is because a, a child needs a father and a mother in the faith, in the Lord. That's the ideal thing. That's why Christian marriage is mandated by the apostles to not be unequally yoked. You can't marry outside of the faith, and really you can't marry anyone who God has not really prepared you to marry and who's not a godly person to marry because God wants godly fruit. And we, we think family is just, oh, I really want to you know, have sex when I'm an, an adult, so I'm going to get married. That's honestly the primary motivation in, much, in many of our young people growing up in the church today is, oh, I just want to have a nice life in the future. And I know a lot of, you know, marri being married is better than being single. Now, brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong. Being married is a wonderful and gracious gift from God, but it's not all for you. It's so that you would be able to raise godly children. And, and through those godly children, God would continue his covenant in the earth. The father's goal in marriage, according to the prophet Malachi, the aim, the teleological end for which God created marriage is children. God is not ambivalent to the treatment of children, but rather he establishes families in order to bring about the next generation. The Psalms say that God takes the solitary or the orphan and he places them in families. The way he does that is not only through adoption, but also individuals coming to the church. But the point is that God likes families. He hates divorce, and therefore, if, we are, uh, if we've been affected by divorce, there's grace, there's forgiveness in Christ. It, it, by no means take what I'm saying to communicate, oh, well, these people are just gone. and God will bring restoration, but don't cause damage to need restoration. And so the major aim, the way that we have to think about family is God wants to establish covenant representatives the apostles also tell us that the husband and wife are a visible sermon to the world as a symbol of the bride and Christ, but he also wants godly offspring. Likewise, the thrust of Peter's triumphant end to the first public proclamation of the gospel overwhelmingly is familial, and by that I mean it's family-oriented. Now here is where at the end of our sermon I get to the text. Acts 2, 36 through 39, this was in our reading today, let all the house 
of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus Christ, to be both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. At, before this in our reading, you remember that Peter went through some of the covenant history and how we know Jesus is the Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now here it does say that the men of Israel uh, are responding. Um, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. The reason I say men is because they say they call them brothers. Now, I, admittedly, a sister can call a brother a brother. But the point is, I, I think that there were men in this group. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, here the our understanding of the Old Covenant and the commandments of God's uh, celebrations are really important because in each one of the feasts and the festivals, it says you're to appear before God. And then in, in a few of the festivals, it says you bring your children, your servants, your everything. You bring your tithe and you go to Jerusalem. So although this isn't necessarily, I mean, these people are not yet Hebrews. They're not circumcised Jews. Uh, these people were God-fearers. Uh, some of them were probably circumcised, probably not all of them. But the point is clear. It's likely that there were families here. But even if there weren't, again, I'm not going to make a Lydia's children or the Philippian jailer's babies argument today because I don't think you need to make that argument. I think those arguments are like the, the mop-up team running behind the charge. Here's the charge. Verse 38 and 39, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children. And here you have to say, if you are advocating that when Peter says to these people that he's lying, then you have to take it up with Peter and Luke, who wrote Acts 2. For the promise is for you and for your children, and it goes a step further, and for all who are far off. Peter is looking at the great horizon of where this church movement is going now that the Holy Spirit has come and has invigorated the disciples of Jesus Christ who were in this room waiting for him to fulfill his promise, which he said to wait for, and then you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the utmost parts of the earth. Peter says, I see the covenant-making God has just sent the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he's going to continue to make covenant, and here's what he declares that promise of the covenant to be. It is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. What greater confidence could you give a Christian family in today's cultural context? And to not be warring for our children such that we're seeking to bring this about, to me, would be to not take hold of a very precious promise that God is clearly giving. The whole house of Israel is notified of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say men of Israel. In the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. That's the beginning of the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy. And the exact same thing is, is happening here. He says to these people who are just in Jerusalem, let the whole house of Israel know. Now, the implication is that just the men in Jerusalem are hearing his voice that day, but he's notifying Jerusalem, and then they will notify the rest of the land in Israel, the rest of the people. The men in Jerusalem are cut to the quick. Peter provides the solution. What does it mean to cut to the quick? Uh, it means to take a butcher knife and to go through the flesh, to go through the sinew, to go through the muscle, all the way to the bone. 
of the matter, the heart of the matter, so to speak. It says they're pierced to the heart. They are undone. They're, the thoughts, the intentions of their heart are unveiled. Peter says, this man that God has sent has been demonstrated to be the Lord, God in the flesh, and Christ, the anointed Messiah. These two great themes in the Old Testament of God's promise to be with his people and to also send a payment or a penalty for their sin, to, to bring them to true faith. He's now come, and instead of receiving him with open arms, we killed the only chance of hope that we had. And it says, what must we do? At this point, they're pleading. They're gasping for air. They are, they are, they are like falling over the side of a cliff and asking for a little bit of rope. They're asking Peter, what can we do about this? And Peter gives them a remedy. Be baptized and repent. This bears out in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And here we're going to see something that, again, I don't like to go into the Greek most of the time because I don't know Greek. But sometimes it's very important and it's sometimes helpful to learn some Greek. So I'm going to teach you some. 1 Corinthians 7, 14 through 16, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Okay, now just to set the context really quick, there's some dispute in Corinth at this time whether Christian women or Christian men should divorce their non-Christian husband or non-Christian wife. Uh, work, work the correspondence out there. Um, and he says, no, don't do that. Don't do that at all. And why? Because of this. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Is he saying that they're born-again Christians? No. He's saying that they're holy. And we're going to talk about what that means. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Here's, here's the pattern. In the Old Testament, if you married an unbeliever, you married someone outside of Israel, then you were to be cut off. And here the new covenant has come along and it's been revealed. And, and Paul says, you marry an unbeliever or you're married to an unbeliever already. And your children are in the covenant instead of outside the covenant. More greater and precious promises. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Then verse 16 for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And the implication would be clear if we would but press it out for a second. How do you know, believing parents, whether or not by your godly example, you will save your children? In almost every other place, including the first chapter of this same epistle, the word that's used for holy is actually not holy. Uh, it, it can be translated as holy. But almost every other place, it's translated as saints. Now, think about that for a second. Again, as evangelical believers, as people who value the Word of God, we must come to the Word of God to learn, not subject our categories to the Word of God and therefore interpret it in that light. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not on the slides, but I want to read it to you. Um, I should have put it in the slides. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, Paul is writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul uses the word hagios, 
holy. And it's translated in almost every other place in 1 Corinthians as saints. So just read Hagios here. But if the, uh, sorry, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it are, they are Hagios. They are saints. Why are they saints? Because God's covenant is to children. We're not saying that they are reborn. We're saying that they are positionally related to God, such as to be members of the covenant. We baptize children of believing parents, not unbelieving parents, because they are saints, not to cause them to become saints. And that is the final uh, common objection that credo Baptists make. You're saying, well, how are they baptized? You know, how can they be baptized because they're just children? Well, we don't believe that when we're about to baptize these adults later today, we don't believe that that's making them saints. We're going to baptize them in the recognition that they have begun to relate to God, and God's a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. This is the exact same for adults. We baptize them because they are pro uh, professing faith. And then finally, one more objection just to settle it a little bit. Many credo-baptists who don't like the idea of baptizing children say, well, how can you guarantee that they're going to grow up and be Christians? And I would say, I know many people who I've baptized, who I know now, who I didn't know at the time, were making extremely false professions of faith. The credo-baptist has no more guarantee than the paedo-baptist that those who they baptize are going to persist in the faith. Just as Abraham had no more security as to whether or not this person who was circumcised in the flesh would also be circumcised in the heart. And here's where all this hits home in the gospel. Therefore, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly provides that the sign and the seal of the covenant be given to those who are members of the covenant, not only to those that do actually profess faith in obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Where do they get that? 1 Corinthians 7. That language, they didn't invent that language in 1600. The parents of one or both believing parents. Uh, so the, the point is that here they're seeking, these, these Westminster uh, theologians are seeking to apply what 1 Corinthians 7 teaches, and here's how they applied it. So let's say you are unconvinced. Fine. That's, that's good. You can be unconvinced. You don't need to change your mind in a day. And in fact, when I was learning about this, it took like three years. But at the beginning, I was willing enough to be open to learn from people who had already taught me very, very good things about the Christian faith and who I had seen had manifest fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so here, we're not advocating some sort of faithless, dead, works religion program so as to hope to have our children relate to Christ. That's not it at all. And even if that were the case, uh, we should preach against that. You cannot approach God in, in hypocrisy. You can't do the external form and not have the internal substance. And here is where both the Pado-Baptist and the Credo-Baptist must agree. That at the end of the day, no amount of washing, whether, uh, whether with water or, or you know, uh, Fiji water or some really good water, no amount of washing would accomplish anything if it weren't for Jesus. Yes, we must become mature in our knowledge of God and his ways. Now, by me saying this message today, I'm not saying that if you never become a, a paedo-baptist that you are going to be kicked out of this church. Far from it, you will still remain a good and welcome member. But I believe that this is wisdom, 
And I believe that there are families in our church who are going to go Pado Baptist. There are families in our church who are going to go Credo Baptist. And that's okay. We can be unified in the spirit as long as we agree two or three things that will be charitable to each other. There are many people in our church who don't believe a lot of the things that I believe about the effectiveness of, of, of healing or the gifts being for today. There are some people who subtly believe, well, yeah, I'm positionally okay with that, but I don't want to get into it myself. They're still welcome here. We do not have to divide when we disagree as long as we are not disagreeing about essential matters. And the essential matters that are important in the discussion between paedo-baptism and credo-baptism, or the baptism of children and the baptize, baptism of those who believe, the essential thing that matters is what is the faith rooted in. It's not rooted in my ability as a parent to bring up my child. It's rooted in the grace of God. And that grace being permanent on me, not being taken away. Because Jesus Christ says, of those who the Father gives me, they're in my hand, and no one can snatch them from me. So no, we may not divide about this. If you become knowledgeable and then become cynical about your brothers and sisters who disagree, you have achieved nothing. Let's say I convinced you, and now from this point, you go around thinking, oh, well, those credo-baptists, they're really bad, and they don't know their Bibles, and I need to fix them. It may be mature, and it may be wisdom for them to humbly approach the scriptures and also see why has the church in every century practiced this? Why has it been the majority practice throughout the centuries? But the point is, if you hate your brother and you disagree about a minor thing, according to 1 John, the love of God isn't in you. And so your, your, your biggest problem isn't whether you should baptize your children now or when they're 10. Your biggest problem is that you are a hater of God and you hate your brother. So no, credo-baptists, paedo-baptists must not begin to accuse one another in their minds. And they must be charitable, and they must seek to be like-minded. I believe that the New Testament does not say we have to all think the exact same thoughts. It says we must be like-minded, which means we should think alike enough that we can have a real life together. If you become knowledgeable and, and filled with uh, some doctrine, or let's say this drives you far into credo-baptism, you say, nope, I'm rejecting that, I'm going even deeper into credo-baptism, fine. But you can't do so that in order to uh, you know, use that as a tool to beat over the head of your brother and sister. You shouldn't hit your brothers and sisters with things. Now, while we're learning about this, while you're diving into the richness of covenant and understanding all of the wonderful tapestry that God weaves throughout every chapter of every book of his scriptures, while you're seeking to become mature, you cannot lose the center. And this is where we say that, yes, paedo-baptism is consistent with the evangelical tenet that every person must have a real saving faith in Jesus Christ. By using the word evangelical, I'm not using it as a term of slander. I'm using it as a term of this is what unifies us with other evangelicals is even in the reformed camp that we're in and this church has been in for for years lowercase r not cap most capital r reformed wouldn't say we're reformed by the way but the point being that we believe enough to to understand yes these are some aspects of covenant these are some aspects of how the gospel works but at the same time we maintain that people must really know god 
And the way they know God is being by, taught about him, both in church and in family. No amount of washing, either young or old, would accomplish anything at all unless the water points to blood. And that water, which points to blood, is not pointing to abstract blood. It's pointing to the blood of Christ. The water applied to the body is a reminder of the blood of Christ being sprinkled on our hearts. It's not a thing that accomplishes that sprinkling. It's a reminder of that. It is the blood by which of the eternal covenant by which we are saved. It is not a blood of bulls or goats. It's not by the works of man. It's not by your attempt to strive in order to keep your family in the covenant. It's all by grace, whether you're a young, new adult believer or whether you're growing up in the faith. We have now become a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. God promised to Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we have now become those who, by God, are fulfilling the promise. In Christ, we have been truly blessed. Let's close with Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would fill us with love for our brothers and sisters, both those who don't believe in this and those who do. God, also fill us with love for our children. God, help us to see that uh, you not only died for us, but that you died for our children, that the promise is not just for us, but for our children, that when you told Abraham that you would be his God, you also said, and your children, that yes, God, you do not have any grandchildren, so to speak, but at the same time, you call yourself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful promises of the New Testament, which are greater than those which were found in the Old Testament, that it's not only that you send your spirit into our hearts, but Lord, that you cause us to bring up our children after you. And Lord, we know that no amount of human effort could ever accomplish any of this. It's always by grace that we are saved. Even, even children who grow up in the faith and don't run away from the faith, Lord, even they are by faith. So God, help us. Help us, Lord, wrestle with what we see in your scripture. Help us to hear under your word. And, and Lord, help us to be humble as we seek to put into effect, put into force everything that uh, you've taught. God, we pray that you would give to us a wonderful day in which we celebrate the, the newness of life that people are finding today. And God, help us to begin to understand how you wish to restore not just the church, but also the family. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.